In 2007, the Globe and Mail called Douglas Gibson a publishing icon. Earlier, the British wit Frank Muir noted that he wrote alarmingly well for a publisher. Now, in his first book, he tells the story of his career as a Scottish immigrant who came to Canada in 1967, armed with degrees from St. Andrews and Yale, and a determination to do something interesting. His career as an editor and as a publisher who kept on editing took him in 1968 to Doubleday Canada, then in 1974 to Macmillan of Canada, where he became the publisher in 1979. He established the first editorial imprint in Canada at McClellan and Stewart in 1986 and was the publisher at M&S from 1988 until 2004 when he moved back to concentrate on his imprint, Douglas Gibson Books. He retired in 2008 at 65. He has won many awards over the years and is the first publisher to be made an honorary member of the Writers' Union of Canada. He lives in Toronto with his wife Jane when he's not traveling the country on his one-man show, Stories About Storytellers. His website is douglasgibsonbooks.com. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much, Michael. I'd like to present a matrix which contains me as a reader, me as a book collector, you as an editor, you as a publisher, and work, if we could, with those sort of connections. So to start with, as an editor of some of the greatest books ever written in Canada, and having exercised judgment throughout your entire career, could you tell us what you think are the greatest novels ever written in Canada? Oh, that's too hard to respond uh, off the top of my head. But I think we all have a fair idea of the greatest novelists. And the New Canadian Library, I think, has done a good job of categorizing or canonizing those great novelists. And then, of course, the admirers of the Hugh McLennan, of Margaret Atwood, whoever, through the ages, would have their own individual arguments about whether this is the great Margaret Lawrence book or that is the great Margaret Lawrence book. But Canada has been unusually rich in great writers, especially in the last half century. I'll tell you a story that, that will startle you. Alice Munro remembers being at a literary party in the late 1950s in Vancouver when a highly respected professor, highly educated man, said loudly in the party, well, of course, I never read Canadian fiction. And this was regarded as a reasonable thing to say in the 1950s. To consider any educated person in Canada saying those words aloud without irony nowadays is just ludicrous. So uh, we've come a long way, and we've been very lucky, is the, the right word, in magically discovering a system of encouraging our authors and to what extent that's based on the Canada Council being supportive of supporting both the publishers and of individual writers or whether it's to do with the magical feeling that welled up around 1967 when Canadians became aware of being Canadian we've all benefited from this remarkable resurrection or, or insurrection of Canadian talent mm -hmm. to the extent that I, I sometimes say if fiction writing especially but writing in general were an Olympic sport our guys would be on the podium all the time and you'd be hearing oh Canada all the time it's not because 
the world out there says, oh, Canadians are nice, we should give them some sort of reward. They're winning the international prizes because they deserve to win. And it's significant that uh, it was an American reviewer in The Atlantic that said about 10 years ago, just flatly, of Alice Munro, she is the living writer most likely to be read in a hundred years' time. And that's remarkable. And yet, from the collector's perspective, her books are dirt cheap. You compare them to Hemingway. Yes. They're a twentieth of the price. Well, that sounds to me, <laughs> I don't wish to sound like Stephen Harper before a recent election, that sounds to me like a good time to be in the market. Yeah. But clearly, I, I'm not knowledgeable about the book collecting business. I, I produce them, <laughs> other wiser people decide the ones that are worth collecting. But that's an extraordinary statement. I mean, Alice Monroe clearly is a market worth cornering. I know that there's a, not necessarily a conflict, but a discussion between reviewers who wish to judge the value of a, a book in comparison to others and to rank them, which is where I'm head we're headed with the first question. You've gone through word by word the works of a good number of the top best ten, let's say, Canadian writers in history. So I wonder, would you ever rank them? Maybe you could get to that. No, I go to great lengths to avoid ranking writers, especially my writers. And I have the greatest sympathy for every jury that gets into the business of choosing between this and this and this and this. And I think that's an extraordinarily difficult job. Because each work is unique for one thing. Each work is unique, and it's not as if you're saying, okay, this is simple. Which book has the highest number of pages? Hey, here's 562. It is the clear win. Yeah. We, we're talking purely subjective grounds for judgment. And subjective, by definition, means that they're individual. They're in your head and, and that person's head. And they relate to my experiences uh, and absolutely. ones that you haven't had and vice versa. I'm keenly aware of what a miserable job it is to be a, a literary judge because once in my stupid youth, could I avoid juries now, I was asked to help judge the best Canadian short story of the year. And so we were given, I don't know, 30 or 40 short stories to read them. Of course, juries do indeed read everything that's submitted. But that was the year that Alistair MacLeod brought out a short story, As Birds Bring Forth the Sun, about the legend of the great grey dog that would appear as a forerunner of death in this ancient family. You know, that story has appeared in anthologies all around the world. So it seemed to me, and one other member of this three-person jury, that there was no contest. third member of the jury stated that she did not understand the story, disliked it very much, and after hours of argument, I'm ashamed to say, we all compromised on everyone's third choice. And nobody was happy. And I am to this day deeply ashamed that this landmark story by Alistair MacLeod, whom I did not then publish because of course I couldn't have been part of the jury, that it was passed over. And that sort of horse trading and compromise I'm sure goes on in many, many literary juries. And I think it's an unhappy process. And I, I suggest in my book that 
is the novelist and winner. That's an unpopular view because there's no doubt that the Giller Prize, the most outstanding example, has done a wonderful job of attracting attention to the newest batch of novels this year, short stories. There's no doubt that the books on the long list, usually five or six, benefit tremendously from that inclusion. And there's no doubt, because I published half a dozen of them, that the winners then go on to fame and fortune and they, their sales are, are, are hugely multiplied. And the promotion that goes with it is enormous. But I would also suggest that it's raised the stakes to the extent that public that is already bedeviled by too wide a range of choice simply settles for the longest books or the the winner and ignores the other worthy books that for whatever reason were not selected. It's almost as if it wasn't worth writing and publishing those books. Suddenly no one wants to talk to you. Suddenly all of the TV shows that were saying, well maybe are, are busy with the people who are on the list. It's very hard for these worthy books and worthy writers to get any sort of attention. So we're talking about a, a more divided society with very rich and, and very poor. And I'd suggest that in literary society, the creation of and the importance ascribed to major prizes like the Giller Prize is in creating two nations among our, our, our writers. That's a worrying trend. And I, I may sound ungrateful by, on the one hand, recognizing that what Jack Rabinovich has done with the Killer Pipe is marvelous overall for fiction, great achievement, but I regret, in good Canadian fashion, the fact that it has had a harsher impact on those that are passed over. Yeah, I see prizes and the lack of nominations as a motivation for people first to read the books, because if you hadn't read them, you can't talk about them at cocktail parties or wherever. You would or you could. You <laughs> yeah. would be surprised. There are books about this, yes. But if you're if you're particularly annoyed that a book that you love hasn't been placed on a list, at least it gets you stirred up enough to try and convince others otherwise. So I, I think there's that. That's certainly true. And as you know, the very good bookstore in Burlington became so stirred up about this a different drummer that they have created a different drummer a drummer general's award which is given to the most unjustly neglected book that's being passed over by a government general's award and the other but there are some super books in there so yes you're right it gets people stirred up but just a a cynical note I've been to Giller Prize every year and if you think that debate is restricted only to those people who have actually read the books that are in the yeah. you're in for a surprise. In fact, when people ask me what I think of book X, and I say, well, I've read Y and Z, but I haven't read X, then they're very surprised when I decline to give an opinion on X's chances. <laughs> I don't so it doesn't usually act as any sort of handicap for people expressing strong and vigorous opinions whether they've read them or not. Perhaps we could get to the history of your publishing house. Why did you connect it with McClellan Stewart? Why didn't you just set up your own company? Because Avi Bennett had just bought 
McClellan and the script from Jack McClellan. And as Abby tells it, he said, okay, I've got the company now. What, what do you suggest, Jack? And Jack said, I'm trying to hire that young fellow Gibson who's running Macmillan. And I think he said young fellow Gibson. I wasn't exactly a teenager. Anyway, Abby came to me and said, how would you like to come here? And he said, what would you really like? And I said, I'd really like an imprint, editorial imprint, where I just work with the authors I want to work with. I don't go to any meetings. I'm not <laughs> going to have my life consumed by meetings. And I just roam around and, and you know, meet authors all across the country and decide that, yeah, we can work together. To and focus on what you love doing. Yeah. Abby, to his eternal credit, uh, said this was a great idea. In fact, he might have proposed it. It was an early conversation. I said, well, that's the sort of thing I like very much. And it was a new idea, an editorial imprint. And if it was going to be called Douglas Gibson Books, I thought it might as well be me in charge of it. I had the right name for it. And it worked out so well that I did that for a couple of years. And the only meetings I went to were sales conferences where they wheeled me in and I, I would say, okay guys, here are the ten books that I've been prepared in my two-person department, me as an assistant. And we had wonderful fun. And then after a couple of years, we <laughs> came shuffling in and said, um, I'd like you to take over the whole shooting match at McLellan and Stewart. And I was hugely reluctant. I said, no, but I've got the perfect job. I, you know, I, I, no meetings. This would mean lots of <laughs> meetings. I tried to put him off for a week. And in the end, he played dirty. He said, look, this is McLellan and Stewart. We really need you to come in as publisher. So that was September 1988. And I stayed there until 2004. And it, it was wonderful. But uh, it meant that the editorial imprint and the working with the authors I really wanted to work with was evenings and weekends work. You know, a fair number of pretty good uh, books. And then since then, since I, quote, quote, retired in 88, I've continued to bring one or two books a year by old friends who expect me to look after them, like Alice Monroe, who has a new book coming out in the fall of 2012. There you are hot new news break. There will be a new Alice Monroe book. And this fall there's a new volume in the extraordinary series about Pierre Trudeau that began with Young Trudeau by Max and Monique Lemley, which won uh, Shaughnessy Cohen Prize. And this second volume, which takes Trudeau from 1944 to 1965 when he enters Parliament, You're being a publisher! I'm instantly happy <laughs> talking about other people's books and then you start start questioning me about my own book and I say, oh, that, I guess it's not bad. But you're right, I, it, it's easy to slip into the 40-year uh, carapace of uh, talking about other people's books and it's all new when I talk about my own book. But I'm getting used to it. Well, it's interesting. In the book, you still very much are the publisher. You are championing all of these in the stories that you tell of, of the great writers that you've published, uh, Alistair MacLeod and uh, Robertson Davies and Miles Monroe and, uh, and many others, you are cheerleading, I think, in a way. Well, that's, that's a very nice observation, because I hope that's true when, when I do my 
show, as you know, or in that book, I hope that lots of people are going to say, gosh, I don't know this book, Dancing on the Shore by Harold Farm, but if yes. Gibson said this is a big classic to the ten most years by Barry Brooks, I heard of it, I guess I haven't read it. Yes, and in fact it's funny, because that's why I started my questioning by asking you to make a judgment of the greatest Canadian books, because throughout this book, you actually identify the, the Horward book you mentioned, you call it Our Walden. Yes. But maybe that's how I should rephrase it then, and try and get you to identify uh, the books that you think are the classic, most important <laughs> books that Canadians really should read, if there is such a list you could put together. Well, that, that would be too hard, I think, but what I can do is, as I've done in this book, I said, here are the authors I worked with in a privileged position as their editor, helping them, working with them, getting to know them really well, and from that vantage point, I'm able to say my own favorite amongst these books is yes, yes. book X and book Y, yeah. and in some cases, as you just indicated, some of the authors are not as well known as they deserve to be. And so it's great to be able to point out Harold Horwood's Dancing on the Shore. You call him a neglected genius. Neglected genius. Yeah. That's what I say. You pick up that book and start to read it, and you will say, why did I not know about this book? The other one I, I do want to point out is one that's very familiar to generations of Canadians, and that's Hugh McLennan's Barometer Rising. And I suggest that in there is the most important paragraph in Canadian literature. And I begin by noting that when Hugh McLennan wrote Barometer Rising in 1941, think of that, a year when the war is going really badly and the Canadians are not sure what the future holds. Hugh McLennan writes this novel set at the time of the Halifax explosion. But it's so unusual to set a novel in Canada that he feels obliged in the preface to explain that he uses, though he uses real Halifax street names, the characters he has walking through these Halifax street names do not have real names. These are made-up characters. And that, that, just, that tells us volumes. And then, as I say, in the course of one of his lead characters walking through those named streets, night begins to fall. Then there's my take on the most important paragraph in Canadian literature, where his hero pauses and looks up at the setting sun the stars coming out. And Clement then says that the sun was setting over Halifax, was rolling over Montreal, casting the valleys of shadow over Sherbrooke Street and Peel, the St. Lawrence was turning crimson. And then we follow it as if the satellites mm. we see we see the, the sun over the frozen prairies, shining on the Rockies, and then shining in, in British Columbia. And at the end he takes a moment to marvel at the extent of the railway with one end in the darkness of Halifax and the other end in the flush of a British Columbian moon. And you see exactly what he's doing. He's trying to create a Canadian readership that feels that this is about them and about all of them, coast to coast. And this is before, before satellites, before any vision of the earth from above. And the planets great creative imagination allowed him to see Canada rolling, the sun rolling above Canada to 
when I read, and I, I have read this, the sentence before, and I always think of when CBC comes on the air, this camera in an airplane that sort of goes zooming yeah. from one coast to the other, and very much the case in the words, isn't it? So there's obviously, for a collector and a, and a reader, this is a book. McClendon won five Governor General's Awards, three novels, two non-fiction. Yeah. That's a significant point. He was such a writer engagé that his essays were hugely important and were winning Governor General's Awards. One essay called It's the U.S. or Us from the early 60s is actually credited with making people think and helping bring about the Davy Commission which brought about CRTC regulation and Canadian uh, content rulings. So this was a man who was helping to create the Canada we live in. This speaks to your connection with your writers. You spoke at, at his funeral and I noticed that you spoke at quite a number of your writers' funerals. So obviously a, a wonderful connection that you've established with these people. Yes, you know, it's a great and terrible honour to be asked to speak at anyone's funeral. And I, I was honoured that way by Hugh McLennan. In a different way, I mentioned I was honoured by James Houston, the man who went into the North and established the trade in, in Inuit art and has transformed the North with millions coming in from the, the, the art that he is set up, the trade he established. Yeah, you, you suggest, or others have suggested, that without him there may well be no Inuit art. Indeed. The gallery owner was quoted directly saying, no James Houston, no Inuit art. Yeah. He would spread the word and then organized the, the trade sites and the money <laughs> flowing northward. In a um, way you're doing that for your writers. Hmm. Well, I think they've already done it for themselves. Yeah. But, oh, but you mean I'm establishing the trade by helping them to, to make a living as writers. You're yes. doing that with uh, your career and in your book here you're just solidifying it perhaps. I hope so. You notice that this is the opposite of a memoir where I'm going to get even with X and Y and Z. This is a celebration of the people that I've been lucky enough to, to work with. Yeah, it's very positive. I was surprised because at first I thought, well, this is just cheerleading. But if you read carefully, it's a wonderful celebration. You're not going to find any of the massive amounts of dirt that you often do find in the lives of various writers. Obviously, you purposefully structured the book yeah, to be a celebration. Exactly. I thought, I'm only going to deal with the writers I enjoyed working with. And as my career developed, I reached the point where if I didn't enjoy working with X, then, you know, someone else could look after <laughs> Life yeah. is too short, yeah. and yeah. I was in a position to just concentrate on, on a very few major people I liked working with. But I did want to jump back to James Houston, because one of the great honors of my life was to be involved in going back to Kate Dorset, where he set up the trade and to have a hand in scattering his ashes. And that was lovely, a great, great honour. John Houston, his son, was doing a documentary film about his father, and he filmed those of us who were going north for that 
exercise and he, he did a terrible thing to me. Uh, he showed me both in the North and seen what I'd learned about the North from it, working with his, his father. And then right at the end, he came to my home in Toronto and he said, final question, filmmaker's trick, camera right on me. What did you feel like when you heard that my father had died? And other people in the film rise to the occasion and they speak eloquently. What you get from me is 10 seconds of just bleak wordlessness. And he kept it in. And anyone who came on the film in the middle would say, what is wrong with this man? Stunned at remembering the sorrow. And it, it, as I say, it's a filmmaker's trick. It was very effective, and I'm still mad as hell. <laughs> well, for showing the, the wonderful connection that you had with him, obviously. Yes, no, I, I was, as I spoke coming through, I was hugely fond of Jim Houston. I'm speaking with Douglas Gibson, who is the author of stories about storytellers, published by uh, ECW Press. I wonder if we could, with the, our remaining time, look at the difference between your role as an editor and as a publisher. Yes. You talk about how you approach a book. You'll read it with your hands tied behind your back to start right, with right, right. and then get to basically a dialogue in the margins yes. between yourself and the, the writer. It's filled with suggestions and not right and wrong. Exactly. I've taught a lot of editing classes over the years and the two main messages I try to get across are it's the author's book and it's the author's name that goes on the cover and the author has the last word within the parameters of the law you can't lie etc etc but after that the author has the last word no matter how much you would prefer it the other way it's, it's, it's her choice and the second one is runs parallel to that, that the key to a successful editor-author relationship is for the editor to establish early on that you're both on the same side, and that is the side of the book. And once you can make that connection mm -hmm. and get that message across... Get the defensiveness down. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Everything becomes easy. Okay, this person is helping me. This person is not somebody who's here to be a, a mosquito <laughs> a constant uh, source <laughs> of irritation and, and you, you use the phrase I think I use that initially as an editor I realized that the first thing that's important to do is to have the reader's reaction and so I would read it making not a single note hands tied down back so that you just get the reading experience and then I would sit and think about it a lot and sometimes the thinking is as simple as what any reader is getting, gee it starts off a bit slowly, it would be good if we knew that there was going to be these adventures and up in the Rockies mm -hmm. and something etc etc and so you see those wider objections then as you say you have this running dialogue in the margins now this is very old fashioned because now of course we have track changes and I, I can do that. I, well, this old dog has learned new tricks. But the changes are still in the form of suggestions. I think this is not, okay, we've changed your, your book, it's now perfect. It's, 
I'm suggesting you might rework this paragraph something like this and then the, the, the dialogue continues in electronic form rather than in the form of, of scribbled notes in the, in the margin. In the book, as you perhaps know, I actually explain that process and then I say when you, I would then make all these comments in the margin, I would then package up the manuscript and send it off to the author and I'd sit and wait, find out what the reaction was. Here is the reaction I got from one specific manuscript, uh, Robertson Davies, Mercer and Walking Spirits. And it's a long letter from Robertson Davies saying, I think uh, this is a good idea, I think you're crazy here, it just doesn't make blah blah blah. And it's really interesting to see him dismissing some, accepting of, accepting some, begrudging, well you wanted it and now you've got it. I would argue that's a valuable document in there because it shows, very frankly, shows both of us doing our jobs. I'm raising questions, I don't think this quite works, maybe you should consider that as a professional, and he, as a professional writer, is considering them and giving some of them the back of his hand and others saying, oh yeah, you're right, no, this is better. Third message for young writers, I say nobody is winning or losing yeah. in this again. Yeah. It's not a zero-sum game. Exactly. Yeah. You're both professionals and you're both acting like professionals and at the end, that's fine. You end up with what you end up with. You've done everything uh, you should as a professional. And I, I like to think that that is useful for the reader because it, it does go to the heart of what an editor does. This allows me to answer your, your earlier question, the difference between what an editor does and a publisher does. And in the hierarchy, the publisher, in the Canadian system, the publisher is at the head of the publishing company. And among the troops of people he or she has working for him or her are a group of editors. And the publisher, usually through a managing editor, will assign this editor to work with this author on this book, and so on and so on. And in rare cases, and I was very rare indeed, the publisher will insist on remaining an editor. And I, I continue to insist on that. Hey, I'm good at this, I'm going to go on doing it. And there are some authors like Alice Munro who expect me to continue working with them. Just as long as she is, and look what she's gone through. Right. That's the main difference. Publisher, figurehead, editor, among the hard-working worker bees, but when you have a publisher who was an editor and is determined to remain that such, then he steps into the more detailed uh, editorial role, mm -hmm. and in my case, was delighted to do it, because it means that you have a much closer relationship with the author than if you're just the, pub just the publisher. You know, as publisher, I published literally thousands of people over the years, and I got to know some of them quite well, but they're not really in this book. Margaret Atwood, for instance, is a friend of lots of her books, but there isn't a chapter on Margaret Atwood. She comes in in a walk-on role here and there, but uh, the, the figures in the book, with only one exception, were people whom I sat down and edited. And the exception was Charles Ritchie, because I was a sort of additional editor, a cheerleader, encouraging him to you know, give us more and as you know from the book, it turned out that, ironically, my own role as cheerleader was counterproductive and led to what we did not want. 
But that's what happens. As I say, Charles Ritchie, you should have been a spy, and if you mm-hmm. end up running a spy, he'll sometimes turn out to be a double agent. But everyone else was someone I worked directly with uh, as, as their editor, and consequently got to know very well indeed. And isn't that the most important thing in life, to seek out interesting people and connect with them in a way that makes your life richer? As you notice, right from the start with the caricatures of interesting, recognizable people on the covers of the book, I'm I'm trying to get across the image that, hey, this book is fun. This is not a sober, solemn book about Canadian literature or Canadian public figures. You know, because it includes Trudeau, Mulvaney, Paul Martin, etc., etc. That aspect of fun, I like to think, is summarized in the very first words of the acknowledgements where I say, as you can see, it's been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It's fun because I met so many interesting people. I've had a, a very, very lucky life and I'm delighted to have fun sharing it with, with lots of people through the book. I could end this right now here, but I, I'd like to put on my collector's hat again okay. and look at your imprint. And there's two ways we could go at this. One, look at the books that you're most proud of having published. And again, I'm trying to narrow to get a best of list. But also, as far as the container goes, as opposed to the content, are there any books that you want to take a look at? Yes. When I started to publish Alice Munro, the first book we did together was Who Do You Think You Are? 77. Prior to you establishing your your own imprint, yeah. Okay, but this is establishing something quite important. In those days, and I'm being a little cynical, most Canadian fiction books had a cover that consisted of the most exciting scene in the book, done by a specially hired illustrator who was told to break out a nice new set of crayons, and they were amateurish. There was nothing distinguished about them. And I had the idea that Alice Munro was classic. It was going to be recognized as classic. So I was going to take an existing piece of art that's Kim Dandy's young woman sitting on the grass. Mm-hmm. The title is Who Do You Think You Are? It's a young woman sitting there reflective. And it was perfect. And it was so perfect that and you can see I'm doing it with Alex Colville, The Progress of Love. And you can see a tree that seems to be flourishing above ground, but uh, in fact is not all well. But it's the same link of two great artists at work. And that's what I did with all of Alice Munro's uh, stories, to the extent that quite soon other Canadian publishers started to put uh, magic realist pieces by Canadian artists artists on their cover and I say rudely, it was their way of sort of trying to wave and think you over here, this one is kind of like Alice Monroe <laughs> I was actually saying the words an author in the tradition of Alice Monroe yeah. in other words, we I had succeeded in establishing that you can give a classic and elegant Canadian look to a classic, elegant Canadian icon and that changed the way Canadian books in general were published. Now that's a grand thing, but I can say it changed the way that 
find short story collections where it treated and I think that did an impact breakthrough. What's interesting about the Danby image is that it captures who she is too. I mean the title yeah, yeah. the title of the book itself yeah. and you refer to two Alice's, the one who does exactly that, who is offended by the show off, and the other who has a sense of humor. And and you recall I put the offended by the show off in a, the Alice Monroe who cares. Yes. And she cares she'll work in the kitchen at the local ch- chicken supper to raise funds for the local theatre. Not glamorous work, you know, hot, sweaty, in the kitchen, carrying dirty dishes. She cares about finding Morley Callahan looking ill in a Toronto subway car and gets off a couple of stops late to help Morley to his dog food. One example I didn't mention, she cares enough about the environment to put terrific pressure on me to have her book printed on recyclable paper mm. at a time when that was almost unheard of or restricted to you know, 500 runs privately published. No, you can't not do that. And it was Alice who broke the love jam, if you'll pardon the bit of it, <laughs> because when she twisted my arm to do it, and it became widely known that none, and uh, Nick, Nicole Rycroft, who runs that operation, was able to go to all the other publishers and say, hey, the biggest guns of all Cullen and Stewart and Alice Monroe are doing this. What's your problem? And that really changed everything. So that was Alice caring about the environment. And then famously, there's Alice who withdraws from the Giller competition. She's cutting back on her own publicity, her own chance of pride, etc., etc. But that is Alice, the, the good, concerned citizen. And then there's Alice, the, the mischievous character who will. She and I have this competition, if you know, about undercutting and underplaying one another. In the chapter, it's <laughs> here it is. It's uh, not a bad short story. Alice Munro, not a bad short story writer. Right, so I'm playing that game, but she yeah. sure plays it too. <laughs> for example, there was a case when she was on a short list for a prize. I forget which one. And she said to me, oh, I really hope that my friend X wins this. You know, he's, he hasn't got the claim he deserves and I'm really rooting for him. So I had to call back and say, Alice, I've got good news and bad news. And she said, oh, what's that? I said, your friend X has won the prize. Oh, this is great. So celebrations from the Clinton end of the line. And then the bad news, Alice, is he has to share the award. But it's with you. <laughs> and Alice says, well, I guess if he has to share the award, it might as well be with me. That's the understated uh, stuff that we, we play all the time. It's very endearing, and she's very good at this game. Winding down for, for real this time. Incidentally, that book we mentioned, Could You Think You Are, ironically, was, was not a very well-produced book. Really? Yes. There's something about it. The, the binding the, oh, is, no. Yeah, it's a difficult book to find in fine, fine condition. Really? Just because of that. Oh my God. But, but putting that aside... This is, this is not good news. It was fine-looking, but I did not know that. Yeah. Moving into your output, if you could put yourself in the collector's seat, what, what would you go after? What would you love to have in your collection? Well, the easy answer, of course, is to go with the great figures you know are going to continue to be great. We've talked about Alice Monroe. 
Alistair MacLeod. Alistair is such a huge figure around the world with only, I think, a total of 17 short stories and one novel. Now that's his entire output. Yeah. And yet he's so famous around the world that in the heart of Inverness County, it read in the summer, ancient Japanese readers find their way to his cottage just to visit him and bow to him. They don't have English, he doesn't have Japanese, but Alistair says we spend amount of time bowing and smiling to each other and they just want to meet this master. There are Japanese translations, Turkish translations, etc. etc. That's very much him too, isn't it? You you just see him as, as bowing. Yes. He'd be happy bowing. Can I tell a, a story that Jane and I visited Nova Scotia two summers ago and we went of course prearranged to stay at the McLeod Inn right next to Alistair. And we visited him, and at the end of the afternoon, the visit, he said, Would you two like to come square dancing with us this evening? Square dancing with Alistair McNeil and McLeod? Yes, yes. And so we went to the Scotsville Fire Hall, and we spent the evening square dancing with the local folks. And it was just as wonderful as you, you can imagine. Now, Jane and I are not square dancing experts, but there was a moment when Alistair leant across and said very seriously, See all these people in here? They all like you too very much. So why? Because you're trying. You're not just sitting back with your arms folded being tourists. We're in there sweating and getting pushed through. And we're having fun and they're having fun too. So there you go. It's a fine recipe for uh, happiness to get involved and have fun with everyone around you. And you hear that so often when you're in Quebec. If you at least try the language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Halfway there. Yeah. So we've got Alistair McLeod, we've got Alice Munro, there's Mavis Glant, who we haven't touched on, but probably going to be remembered. Anyone else? It's hard to identify for different ways, of course. The Prime Ministers are going to be remembered for their memoirs. And I want to put in a special word for Brian Mulroney, who has come through tough times. You have to have a special admiration for a Prime Minister who, A, writes every word of his memoirs in longhand, no ghostwriting, and B, opens a three-page section of his book with the words, it is time to talk about my drinking, and then proceeds to talk very frankly about his hard times as an alcoholic. He hasn't had a drink in, I don't know, 40 odd years now. But that sort of honesty resounds with every reader, and I admire it immensely. And the book itself, is it, it a, is it a well-written book? It's a well-written book. It's 1,100 pages, and that is usually mentioned as a deadly criticism. And the person to blame for that is me, because he wrote it chronologically. And early on, as chapter after chapter came in about his early years, boyhood and youth in Bakewell, <coughs> we met in Montreal, and he said, are people going to be interested in this stuff about growing up in Bakewell? Should I just cut all that at you? Because this is going to be a long book if I keep on at this pace. And I said, no, don't cut the word on it, because what you're telling people is in the fullest sense where you come from. And you'll notice in the subtitle I described it as boy from Baycomo. And I believe that Baycomo absolutely formed him. The key, too, you suggest to his later behavior may have been his deep financial insecurity. I suggest that might have been the case. And I suggest further reasons why all this funny, sloppy stuff like New York bank account and delivery of money 
by hand. What is all that about? Well, I, I propose a, a solution to that. But above all, yes, financial insecurity and also the man who was the perpetual outsider. And you have to realize just how far Beethoven was. 14 hours by road from the nearest city, Quebec City. And this is the outsider, like a Balzac hero who made it all the way to the top. Yeah. But with this terrible financial insecurity behind him, where, to give the example, he and his brother <coughs> had to sleep in the basement around the, the boiler to make room upstairs for a paying guest to come in just to keep the money coming into the household yeah. and food on the table. Extraordinary story. Final question. How did you come to your passion for what you've done in your life? I stumbled into it. And I think you'll find many people admitting that they were lucky enough to stumble into a profession, career, line of endeavor that, that proved to be just right. I knew I was good with words. I'd won English prizes and so on at school and, and essay prizes at university, this, this sort of stuff. So I knew I wanted something to do with words, so maybe newspapers, magazines, broadcasting. But I was lucky enough to stumble across a job as a trainee editor, applied and got the job, and then discovered to my amazement that I'd found a job that I was, I won't say uniquely, but rarely suited for, because to be a really good editor publisher, you need to have a split personality, where on the one hand, you're totally happy living a monk's existence with just you and the manuscript and the world outside going on, and then you're expected also, ideally, to be able to become the sales guy yes. who puts on a straw hat and says, let me tell you about this book. And not many people can be equally good at, at those two sides, and I happen to have that particular split in my personality. So I discovered that, wow, this is a great world, and of course, I came, as you heard, looking for something interesting, and there is nothing, I can't imagine anything more interesting than spending your life working with and helping and encouraging people who by definition have something interesting to say, authors. So it's been a wonderful life and I've been privileged to lead it and now with stories about storytellers I'm able to give back and say, let me tell you what it was like working with these authors. People tend to like stories behind the scenes, especially when, as in this case, they're almost always affectionate and fun. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. I've been speaking with Douglas Gibson, whose most recent and first book is entitled Stories About Storytellers, published by ECW Press. Thanks again. Thank you very much.